We are in the Gospel of Mark again for Palm Sunday. I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been going through the Gospel of Mark now for this past year. Only made it to chapter 8, but we're going to jump to chapter 11 today. And Mark was written, we always keep that in mind, he was really written for mostly Gentile believers who were probably in Rome. A little bit different than those who are aimed at the Jewish people. And uh, <clears throat> he had a lot of followers there, and they were, he was uh, probably getting information from Peter and all of that. And uh, we see that as he writes his gospel, now we, we're going to jump to chapter 11. So I'm going to say, if you've got a Bible, please follow with me. I'm not going to put the text up on the screen, because I think it's good for you to just follow the text in this case here. But we're going to talk about the triumphal entry of Christ, but with a fruitless warning, a fruitless warning this morning. Fast-forwarding ahead, Jesus was done with his ministry in Galilee. He had had some problems with the, with, the, uh, with the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. They'd come up from Jerusalem. In fact, he had to leave, and he went up north into Gentile territory. And that was mainly the thing that, that uh, they were upset with, is that he um, kind of fraternized with Gentiles, and they didn't like that. And so he left to get away from the dangers of the Pharisees and those who were after him, and with his disciples, took some time off, went up north, and actually was in Gentile territory, was considered to be unclean by the Pharisees, but he spent some time there with his disciples and then worked his way back down towards towards Galilee and uh, healed a couple of people, Gentile people. So he did love Jews, but he also loved Gentiles. It was to the Jew first and the Gentile also, and he... I really modeled that. So eventually now he came down to Jerusalem and um, spent some time traveling. That was 70, 80 miles from probably where he was near Galilee. Walked down there. His disciples were with him. And this is the time where we will see his formal announcement of his Messiahship. He'd been to Jerusalem before. He'd been there earlier in his ministry and his three years of ministry was done in Galilee and other parts, but he'd been to Jerusalem before, so it wasn't the first time. Now he comes back again for his final time as he makes this announcement. Meantime, the, uh, the Pharisees who are after him were in Jerusalem and they wanted to arrest him. Well, we'll get to our text in a minute here, just kind of laying the background so you can understand clearly what's, what's really going on here. Um, John chapter 12, verse 9 through 11 tells us that a great multitude of Jews found out that he was in Bethany. Bethany is just a, it's just a little small village on the other side of the Mount of Olives to the, to the east. And it's really kind of hard to know exactly where it was, they, they say. But it wasn't a very far walk to the temple area, to the city of Jerusalem. It was just around the side of the hill and then down through the valley and then up to the place where the temple was, probably 30-minute walk, so to speak, and that's where he was, and that's where he was in Bethany. He was with some of, the, some of his friends there. Uh, if you remember that Lazarus had died, and he raised him from the dead, and now the people heard about the fact that Lazarus was alive, and he had been with him even in that uh, trip back to Jerusalem there. And the priests now had to try to get rid of Lazarus again. They were going to kill him again because it was a problem for them because some people were so excited about the fact that Lazarus was alive. But they didn't get to do that, fortunately. And as he comes back to Jerusalem, it's about six days before Passover, he came to Bethany, which was where we were referring to there, stayed at Simon the leper's home there, and uh, here, some things happened. Mary, um, who was a woman, came and anointed his feet with expensive oils, and some of the disciples didn't think that was a good idea, but it was really a preparation for his dying on the cross and for his burial. And perhaps she didn't even understand that, of course. Animals would be everywhere because the Passover was coming, and if you got to Jerusalem, it was just like thousands of animals all over the place because there were going to be a lot of them sacrificed. Josephus, the historian from that first century, talked about the Passover and what it was like, so we have a really good picture because he said so much. Uh, he said 
that there were somewhere around probably two million people who were there for the Passover. The hillsides were, were dotted with little tents where people were going to stay and get ready for the, for the Passover, coming around the temple area. It was all in that big temple area. And animals were everywhere you could see. Everywhere. People were bringing the animals in. Shepherds were bringing their animals in. Some of them were being sold. They were being sold to the, to the vendors who were in the temple so that people would have animals for the sacrifices. It was a big, big deal. It was a, that's the picture we have as we enter John, excuse me, Mark chapter 11 verse 1. You might follow along in your Bibles. We'll be mainly in Mark. I'll be bringing other passages of scripture to bear. We get the full picture. As you know, the Gospels mention this event um, quite a bit. And uh, so I'll bring what some of the other Gospel writers say from time to time. But keep your finger there in the Gospel of, of Mark here, chapter 11 and verse 1. And uh, as your Bibles are open, you can just kind of follow along silent with me. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is east of the temple. It's where Jesus ascended to heaven and it is said where he will come back. He sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately... Immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. Now I want you to notice the word immediately occurs two times there. That's Mark's favorite word. It occurs over and over in his, what I call, and many call, the newspaper version of the gospel. So his account is short because he's covering everything very fast and quickly. So Jesus had stayed out of Jerusalem at night and he'd stayed in Bethany because his life was in danger and he didn't want to go in too soon because the Pharisees and the religious leaders were after him. But it was hard to be able to pin him down because so many people were wanting to know what he was going to do. He did miracles, actually, during this week. The miracle that you'll see here is a very interesting miracle. It's probably the only negative miracle that Jesus did, but we'll talk about that in a moment. But he was supposed to go and get a colt. So as they're coming back from Bethany to the city of of Jerusalem there, uh, you'll notice... Matthew mentions a little more detail about it in chapter 21, verse 4, where it says, This all took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden here. This was a quote in the Old Testament from Isaiah 62.11 and Zechariah 9.9. And oftentimes when they were quoted in the New Testament, sometimes you get part of one book and part of one, the other, and they would sort of blend them together to get the idea. But Matthew was telling us a little bit here about why this was all happening and what he was to do. He was going to be coming. The Messiah would come into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey of all things. But notice what Matthew says He says he will come on a colt. He will come to you gentle, not like earthly kings who would ride into the gate. He would come mounted on a donkey, not on a horse like generals would come in. Even a colt. A colt would mean a young animal that had never yet been ridden. And certainly no general would ride on a colt because he could get bucked off until he was tamed. But this one was different. And then lastly, the foal of a beast of burden. A brand new little donkey so to speak. So Mark seems to leave the quote out because of his audience who was more Gentile. So we don't see this so much in Mark. He doesn't mention it. But there to go and there to get this little colt. 
Now, was this theft? Were they going to steal it from somebody there? No, Christ was not stealing something. He was fulfilling Scripture. And certainly they would know these verses from the Old Testament and understand what was going on when they found out. Normally, victorious kings, like I said, would come on a, a dashing horse and make a big fanfare, but Jesus came humbly. He came humbly on a donkey. He's a very different king than the kind of kings that they were looking for to give them victory over the Romans and so forth. He came humbly. And that's the kind of king we have. That's a good thing to keep in mind when we are feeling down. We feel like God is not being fair with us. We feel like he is perhaps sort of um, harsh in what comes into our life. But keep in mind, ultimately, he really is a gentle king. But he has also the power to bring destruction if needed be. So Jesus came in this way. And the people would have immediately recognized it because of the Old Testament prophecy there in Isaiah and Zechariah. In verse 4 now of Mark chapter 11 again, verse 4, they went away and found the colt tied at the door outside the street, in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? These are Jesus' disciples, and they're untying this colt that wasn't theirs. It was right there in the street. It was a kind of in the plain traffic area there. And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. In other words, they told them, we're, do, we're doing the Messiah's work here, and you know these passages from the Old Testament, I would, I would imagine. And they gave them permission. It's very interesting. They just gave up their colt, their little donkey, right away. Most people wouldn't do that. But this child, this little animal was programmed for that. Verse 7 says, They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. The little asterisk by the word brought in the uh, New American Standard Version is there to mean there's kind of a heightened sense of reality with that word. In the Greek, you'll find that, but it's often translated in the past tense here, but it's actually more of a verb in the active present tense. So they went, and the colt was right there with them as they went in. And Jesus used this animal. Very interesting. John, John adds to this. The Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 16, says this. He says, These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. They remembered, but they didn't understand it all even while it was happening really there. And then verse 17 of John 12, it says, So the people who were with him, that's with Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. So there were people going with Jesus. They were probably walking alongside, and, and it probably refers to the fact that they knew about Lazarus being raised from the dead, and they keep talking about it. They're interested in it. They're excited about Jesus. There's an excitement that's in the air here. But the Jewish leaders had fear. They didn't like it because they didn't like Jesus' approach to the law and confrontation with him earlier up in Galilee. They feared a revolt, like I said. Um, and, of course, Lazarus being alive complicated all that. So, there was plenty of proof that Lazarus had actually died before, so they couldn't get away with that because he was actually dead, he actually had a funeral, and he actually stunk. He smelled bad. But now it's obvious that he really has been raised from the dead. So, we move now, really, from this subject of the cult to the shallow reception that took place as he came into the city in verses 8 through 11. Mark 11, 8 through 11. This is Monday now. It's Monday. Spent a little time there in Bethany. Gets up the next morning and he comes into the city. And now you see all the action. All the people have already been gathered there preparing for the Passover. It's a big, big event. Probably there's no better time for Jesus to do what he would do and die on the cross 
than this time because he would be seen and witnessed by the greatest majority of people in all of Israel. Verse 8, they, the many spread their coats on the road and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was repeated over and over. There was a lot of excitement as they threw their coats and the leaves down and probably palm branches, which is why we call it Palm Sunday, in front of this little donkey that was coming up the road to the hillside to come in the gates of the city of Jerusalem and, of course, to the uh, temple area there. Hosanna means save now, save now. Probably was an expression of joy here more than just save now. And it was a time of excitement. And talking about the kingdom of her father David, they were looking for a king that would resurrect a kind of political power that would rule over others and deal with the Romans and get rid of him. But, well, that's not exactly what Jesus was. He was a quiet, peaceful king, really. So they're approaching the gate here saying, Hosanna in the highest. Palm Sunday, I've always said, is really a happy time. As a kid, I remember Palm Sunday coming and we went to church and so forth and just before Easter. And it was always kind of a positive time when we would think of it. And in Sunday school classes, there would be pictures of palm branches and Jesus riding a donkey with a big smile on his face, usually a big smile on his face. The artist put that there. We have no... Of course, picture of Jesus, but we would understand that it was probably just a little bit different than that. Luke chapter 19 gives more detail that Mark does not give. And he says this, that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. In other words, they were following him, those people. They were doing the right thing, at least at that point. Verse 41, and he approached, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. This is a very different picture than a kind of happy slappy situation. He wept over it. He's not in the city yet. He hasn't gone through the gates yet. But the people are there and they're lauding him. But he was weeping when he saw the city. First time I went to Israel, they took us to Jerusalem after three or four days. We would travel down to the Dead Sea area and various other places in the south. We visited, and then we came to Jerusalem in the evening. And our guide said, now I'm going to take you up here. We're going to drive on this road on uh, the Mount of Olives. And as, you, as we come up on the road, you're not going to see the city. But when we come around the corner, suddenly you're going to see the city. And you'll see the Temple Mount what's left of it with all the lights on it. It was like just about dusk. And he said, it is an emotional moment and we'll pull over for you to take pictures. And I did. I did take pictures there. And this was kind of like that in a way as Jesus came around the mountain from Bethany and people were all over the place shouting these things. And then he saw the city and the temple and all of that and he broke down into tears. Only Luke really mentions this here, but it's significant. Luke was a physician. Luke had a feeling for people, and it's mentioned here, and God used it. He said, if you had known the day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. He's talking about the Jews there. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in one leave you in one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. He was describing almost to the T of what it would be like in 70 A.D. down the track, not very far, when Jerusalem would be destroyed by Titus the Roman. They did throw up barricades. This is what Jesus said. Your enemies will throw up barricades. They did this in 70 A.D. when they came. 
They threw up big barricades on the city gates and so forth so you couldn't get out and people starved to death inside the city. It was a kind of siege going on there. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you and people were killed. They will not leave one stone upon another. If you've read the account from Josephus from the first century, it's pretty gripping and it's fairly lengthy also. It's not just a short little thing. He was a Pharisee, but he wrote about these things in great detail and seemed to have some opening to the thoughts of what was going on with Christ there. Not one stone was left upon another. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you can go to the Temple Mount, but there's no temple there. All there is left is part of the foundation of the Mount itself. Um, what happened was when the Romans came in, they started fires, they burned everything. This was uh, Solomon's temple here that was rebuilt. And, uh, and if you want to know why they burned it, it's because they were after the gold that was in the temple and some of that gold filtered down to the cracks between some of the stones in the pavement and people were finding it there. It was a picture of something very sad. That's why Jesus wept as they came into the city there. It says in verse 11 in, uh, in Mark again, it says that Jesus entered and came into the temple and after looking around at evening at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. It was a short visit when he came into the temple. He looked around. It says he looked at everything. He had a good picture of what was going on. And I believe that what he saw there was something very, very sad because he knew what he was there for, but he knew what, what Israel needed also. Matthew 21 adds to this in verse 10. It says, Jerusalem was stirred as multitudes came and he healed the lame, blind in the temple and scribes said, children crying, Hosanna. And um, Christ quoted uh, Psalm 8-2, which says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, those who um, had, had praises uh, for thyself, prepared praises for thyself. So he did some things there, and we don't know exactly how that fits in the big picture, but certainly those kinds of things did happen. There was some healing going on there too. The next thing we come to now is in verse 12. In verse 12 and 13, 14, and so on, we have them returning now, um, returning back to Bethany, it says, it was late that night. So he goes back to Bethany. He's with his friends there. He's got his disciples with him. He gets up the next morning on Tuesday morning and he comes back to the temple. He gets up fairly probably early and goes into the temple. Didn't have any time for breakfast probably there. It says in verse 12, on the next day when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. It was breakfast time. It was early in the morning. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing, nothing but leaves. It was just a tree with leaves. For it was not the season for figs, it was probably April. And in reading about the fig trees there, they can grow up to 20 feet tall. And... Um, they typically have two crops of figs. The first crop is a smaller crop and the second crop is a later one. And this was evidently towards the first time of the crop for the year. He says he found nothing but leaves there. There was no fruit on the tree for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And this was a curse. This was a curse that Jesus was putting on that tree. Why did he put a curse on the tree on his way to Jerusalem? He could have said, tree, bear fruit. And there would have been fruit all over the place falling on the ground. And he could have helped himself. By the way, the figs there are very good. I think the best figs I've ever tasted were in um, Jericho. We got some figs there. I bought some extra to take home. I think I ate them before we got home. They were so good. Um... And they were nutritious. But there was nothing on that tree and they were hungry. And his disciples were listening to all of this and uh, what he said about the tree being cursed. No one ever will eat from this tree again. They didn't understand it. 
Keep in mind that all the time, even the three years of Christ's time with the disciples, often they were confused about things. They saw things in the light of a political ruler that Jesus would perhaps be and so forth and so on. So um, here he is, he's into the city, and this is the first, some say this is really the first negative miracle that Jesus did. It wasn't a positive one, it was a negative one. If you want to count the uh, pigs, the pigs, that jumped into the water when the man who was demon-possessed was healed. You could say that was a negative one too, but it was positive clearly for everybody else. Jesus could have made fruit right out of that, but he didn't, and he went back to Bethany. Bethany was by another village not too far away called Bethphage, which actually means house of unripened figs, interestingly. So here's the tree. They left the tree, they headed to Jerusalem then. And now we see him coming into the temple. Verses 15 through 19 in, in Mark chapter 11. 15 through 19. Then they came to Jerusalem. Notice that little asterisk if you have New American Standard there. That's the historical present. A verb that's translated in the past tense, but um, it, met, it better fits our English language is why the translators did that. But the point is, when he came into the Jerusalem, this was, this was a big event, and that's what that word would carry. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. What he saw the day before, now he deals with. There's action. There's action here. I have a picture that I put up um, of the temple area, and this is really just a model of it. There's a place where you go, um, and you can see the temple here. This is a closer view of it. You saw in the earlier view a much wider court all around, just kind of so you know what this is all about. The temple itself, the Holy of Holies, is that big, tall structure towards the right. And then we have, along the sides of it, the courts of the Jews, which you can't really see. It's behind those walls. And then the court that is closer to us with the four towers around it is the court of the women. And so Jewish leaders could go into the one for the men, but the women would stay into the court of the women there. Where do the Gentiles go? The Gentiles went to that big, big area all the way around the building that extends clear up to where you see all those columns and clear down to the right, uh, just as far as it goes up to the left. It was huge. It was massive. This was a temple that had been rebuilt by Herod. And it's uh, not as big as the original one, but it certainly was a sight to see here. He came in. It says, Jesus was angry when he saw the temple courts. He saw these temple courts, and he was angry at what was going on. There's nothing in these courts here. This is a, this is a, a model probably about uh, 10 feet by, by 15 feet or something like that. You can go and see the whole city laid out as it was in the time of Christ. And it's all outside. But in the courts of these areas, there were people all over the place, just massive numbers of people. And, and Jesus was angry when he saw this. And so it says, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who were selling doves. And they and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. It's quite a deal. Quite a deal. He didn't like what he saw because it wasn't consistent with worship. And really this whole story as he comes into the temple is about worship here. It was the place of worship in all Israel. And there are many devout Jews who want to see it that way again. So he was pretty angry. They, uh, there was the court of the Jews and the court of the women, but the place where all this rigmarole and all this, this kind of overturning of the tables and so forth was taking place was in the court of the Gentiles. 
which is the larger court. And of course, the Jews were making money left and right, business deals, exchanging monies. If somebody brought a, a sacrifice in that they got themselves, arrayed themselves, they had to be checked by one of the Jewish authorities there. And they would look at it and they say, well, oh, there's a little problem with this one, so you're going to have to get rid of this one. But I'll tell you what, I'm making such a deal. I got another one over here for only about 25% more than the ones that are really what you brought. And they would make money on this. And to make the money, they would have to go to the money changers. The money changers would exchange it, and there'd be a little uh, attack, attach, attachable part of that, too, a little extra money you have to pay to have that done, a fee. And uh, Jesus saw this happening right before him, and he was just incensed. Verse 17 goes on to tell us a little bit more about now what was going on. It says, He began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written... Keep in mind, the people are listening. He's right in this area where all they were. And usually when Jesus came into a, to an area, people paid attention. He says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. That's a quote from the Old Testament also, which they would know. In the Old Testament, how it's written, it says in Isaiah 56, which is the greatest Old Testament book prophesying the coming of Christ in the Old Testament. In verse 7, it says, Even though I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer. And so that was the idea behind the, the place. It was to be a house of prayer, a house of prayer. But Jesus said in verse 17 of Mark, he said, you've made it into a den of robbers. So the quote from the Old Testament about the house of prayer that Jesus gave was from Isaiah. But he said, it changed the name of this place. It's a, it's a robber's den here. So this was no house of prayer, since they were charging markups of perhaps 25%, give or take. And Jesus rebranded that court as a robber's den. There was a first cleansing of the temple in the earlier part of Christ's ministry mentioned in John chapter 2. And there he made whips and drove people out and the money changers and tipped over the tables and was after them in holy anger. The disciples remembered Psalm 69, 9, which says, zeal for your house will consume me. It did the first time, but it didn't seem to last because they came right back doing it again. So when he came into the temple, this is what he saw all over again. What's going on? It's a robber's den, is what he was saying. Back to Mark 11 and verse 18. Verse 18, it says, The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Generally, when Jesus taught, he got people's attention. He was God, of course, and he knew the Old Testament, of course, and he backed everything he said up with Scripture, of course. And so the people, they were captured by this, even though they didn't understand the fullness of it. Verse 19 says, When evening came, they would go out of the city. So uh, they would leave again. So you see this unusual situation where he comes in to cleanse the temple a second time. Beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry and it's just as corrupt both times. So Jesus walks out of the city to Bethany once again. But notice what it happens the next morning. The next morning now is Wednesday morning. He spends the night there, Tuesday night in Bethany with his friends, gets up next morning. John adds, the Gospel of John adds about 30 verses, by the way, after verse 19 and before verse 20, which seem to fit there. And these 30 verses are about the Greeks. Some Greeks had come to talk to him, actually. 
And he's quite a, quite a section there in these 30 verses. Um, Mark leaves it out. But the Greeks came to talk about Christ and, and being lifted up and, uh, and so forth. And Jesus talks to them and then he departs from the multitude. He seems to be trying to answer their questions for them. They seem to have more of a genuine interest in Jesus. But now in verse 20, in verse 20 of Mark 11, we have the fig tree once again there. Coming back to the fig tree, kind of interesting. It's mentioned two times in this text here. Verse 20, they were, they were passing by in the morning. It's Wednesday morning, coming back to the temple. And they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Remember that Jesus had cursed it because there was no fruit on it. It was only leaves. But now when they see it, it's withered from the roots up. This was probably no sprig of a plant. It was probably much more than that. They would get up to, I've read, uh, somewhere around 20 feet tall, 10 to 20 feet. And so this is a pretty good-sized tree, probably. And all of a sudden, from the roots up, it wasn't just the vines, it wasn't just the leaves, uh, it wasn't just the little starts that may have been there. It was from the roots that started and kind of came up it was obvious to them that when Jesus cursed it, it was a divine miracle. A negative one, which gives us some concern as we think about it. And being reminded, it says in verse 21, Peter said to him, this is another one of those heightened words here, he said, he said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. (laughs) The disciples didn't seem to get it. I mean, they were there. They didn't understand the first time, but now it's happening. Well, when they came to this place, this tree was plain dead. It didn't happen when he cursed it, and it happened sometime during the night, but, you know, for a tree to be totally dead the next morning just doesn't happen. It was a miracle. Not only the tender branches and the boughs and the trunk and the body of the tree, but even the roots were dead here. But from the roots up, it's all dried up, entirely dead. No room to expect any fruit would ever come from this tree. I find that very interesting because you have a situation here where you have a story about a fig tree in regard to uh, Israel. Israel is not bearing any spiritual fruit in the temple, for sure. The, the leaders had led the people astray, and they're responsible for that. It was, all about the, it was all about going through the motions. It was all about following the, the rules that the Jews had made up, that the, the Jewish religious leaders had made up. And it, it was all about paying, paying your money and them making money out of it. And the, so they had all this buying and selling going on there. And it's interesting, you see the fruitless fig tree on Tuesday with only leaves on a public road where everybody would see it, it appears to be here. And Jesus curses this fruitlessness. It's almost like it's referring to Israel as well. I believe it is. And then number two, Jesus cleanses the temple the second time for the corruption within but this is really the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue was, was worship. He had cleansed that temple when he chased the people out. And where were they? They were in the court of the Gentiles. And by the way, do you remember back when we were in chapter 8, do you remember when Jesus was dealing with the people and the Pharisees came to him? They didn't like it that he did things with the Gentiles in mind, because Gentiles were unclean. They were like dogs, it was a term. But um, here Jesus is in this area, and they had taken over, the Jews had taken over the, the court of uh, the Gentiles and made it into a robber's den. So the Gentiles couldn't even get in to do worship in the proper way, those who wanted to worship the God of the Old Testament that the temple represented. So in this sandwich here, the fruitless tree is on one side of it, and then the cleansing of the temple takes place, secondly, and then thirdly, on the return trip, they find the fig tree that's all withered from the roots up here and totally dead, and uh, not from the top down, but from the bottom up, 
considering that it was really totally dead, clearly dead. If the roots are dead, you can't do anything with the tree, really. Indicating absolute destruction in between. I think that the tree here, as a lot of people do, represents Israel, even though he doesn't directly say that here. It does in Jeremiah 8.13, with the sins of the teachers in Judah. And Hosea also compares it to the forefathers. And here, as they overlook the temple, they're seeing what's up ahead here. The Mount of Olives passes by as they walk onto the city once again. It's a sad sight. Later in Matthew chapter 23, it's so interesting to compare these texts, which I like to do when I'm in the Gospels, because the other Gospels also always have something to say, and a uh, parallel translation of the Gospels where they fit in really is helpful. So in Matthew 23, verse 13, Jesus pronounces woes on the religious leaders, woes. So it's all about, it's all about worship. And if you go back to that passage sometime, it's kind of a longer passage, Chapter 23, verse um, 13 in Matthew. He pronounces these woes on the Pharisees. Woe about this and woe about that. The corrupt, this their legalism. Like whitewashed uh, tombs they were. And they were the spiritual leaders of Israel and they were leading them astray. Corrupt from the inside. Desired to be seen. Robbers. All about making money. Self-indulgence. You know, we have to be careful today because there are religious leaders today who sometimes qualify in those areas. I'm not saying that everyone does, and certainly not. But in every generation, we have issues like that. Then in verse 37, it does say that Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, who kills the prophets also, kills the prophets. And then finally in Matthew 24, I can stay in Matthew just for a moment here. In verses 1 through 4, Jesus answers the disciples about the temple, saying that the temple was going to be totally destroyed. If you know, it's a very prophetic passage, Matthew chapter 24. They come down from the temple, and, and the disciples are with Jesus, and they ask him some questions about the temple that were positive questions. And Jesus said, it's going to be destroyed. Not one stone is going to be left on another. Just like actually took place in 70 AD, which wasn't very far off because this was in the early 30s A.D. Titus, the Roman, came in. And Josephus records all of that for us. So in Matthew 24, it talks about that, and then it goes on to talk about the tribulation and the second coming of Christ and all of that. And the fig tree really symbolized the fruitness, the fruitless nature of Israel, which is described in those other areas there too. So... What does the actual temple tell us about this story? What does the temple tell us? And it was interesting because I like history and I, I went back to take a look at the temples that were on that site. Of course, the site was bought by one of the patriarchs early on. And the first temple that was really built there was what we would call Solomon's temple. Um, 480 years after the exodus from um, from uh, Egypt, they came and uh, Solomon was there and he built this beautiful temple and it only took seven years and six months and it's a massive, it was a massive thing. We don't have it there. We just hear about it. We read about it in the, in the Old Testament there and eventually because of Israel's sin, it wasn't very long it was there, eventually because of Israel's sin, about, about 50 years or so, um, the Babylonians came in and destroyed it due to their sin. It's, a, it's an amazing place. But that was Solomon's temple. Gold everywhere. If you read the account of it in the Old Testament, how they did it had to be by divine direction, which, of course, it was. So they go off to Babylon for a time of uh, incarceration. The people do. They're carried off there. Of course, many people died. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't an easy thing. And then the next temple that pops up on the scene is called Zerubbabel's temple, also called Herod's temple. And um, this is the second temple now I'm referring to here. First temple was destroyed because of sin in Israel again. And so in 586, 
to 70 AD, 586 BC to AD, we have the, the second temple period there. And so there the Jews return to Jerusalem and they're out of Babylon now and they're there and they want to rebuild this temple. They want it back again. So they start to rebuild it and the first part of the temple was called, the, we would call it Zerubbabel's temple actually. And um, it was rebuilt not as big as the other one and some of the people began to complain a little bit about the fact that it was smaller than Solomon's temple. But it was built, but it was sort of start and stop. It didn't get totally finished. And Ezra mentions it in the Old Testament, and some Jews complained about it and so forth. And they um, then built the rest of it eventually under, under Herod. So that would be the same temple that Jesus was in there. It's interesting, though, because there was made this large area where you saw in the picture, which was the court of the Gentiles, and there was a wall dividing that from the rest of the areas that were immediately around the Holy of Holies. And there has been a stone that has been found with Greek inscription on it. I've seen pictures of it. It's in, a, it's in a museum in Europe right now. But on the uh, stone, this large stone, I think it's something like this, it's very clear in the Greek language, and it says this, foreigners must not enter inside the balustrade or into the forecourt around the sanctuary. This is seen by the Gentiles. They were the ones that had to read this. It says, whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. It was a warning sign to any Gentiles not to go beyond the walls of that court of the Gentiles, which was now overrun by Jewish and uh, Pharisee people who were selling and buying and, and making money left and right. They were a den of robbers. Apostle Paul mentions it in the book of Acts, chapter 21, verse 28 also, and um, perhaps Ephesians 2.14, I think it is, talks about it as being the dividing wall. The dividing wall. Well, anyway, Ezekiel's temple is, is finally finished when Herod comes around and Herod revives it. It's not totally finished until then. Herod comes around and um, it took some 80 years to finish the temple that Jesus was in here. We call it Herod's temple or Ezekiel's temple. And um, we see it there again. Very interesting there. Oh, excuse me, Zerubbabel's temple there, I'm saying. But Ezekiel's temple is one that Ezekiel mentions also in the, um, in the Old Testament, which we believe is a temple that's never been built yet because there's nothing that quite matches what it looks like. If you take it as a literal fulfillment of prophecy, you have to see it looking like what it was designed to be like. And we believe, most, most Christians, not everybody does, of course, that there's going to be a kingdom. The kingdom is mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and Christ will rule and reign. And it says for a thousand years, a number of times there, the number is very distinctly given there. And uh, Christ will perhaps be in that temple during that time that it will be built by Ezekiel in that time, mentioning Ezekiel 40 through 48. It's a temple we don't yet see there. So all of these speak about worship in some way. The first temple was built, Solomon's temple, but because of corruption, it was destroyed. God allowed it to be destroyed. The second temple, which was the one that Jesus was in in our text here this morning, and uh, that, that temple they were buying and selling, they made it into a house of uh, den of robbers. And once again, it was going to be destroyed. Jesus said, not one stone to be left upon another. Not one stone was left upon another when the Romans came in. It's interesting, if you go back to Ezekiel for a moment, in 586 B.C., he saw the glory of God leave the temple in kind of a vision, and it went up over the hill and over the Mount of Olives. And that pictured the fact that there wasn't really anything spiritually going on at that time. About 600 years, I think. But now, the triumphal entry takes place and the glory of God enters the temple again. Temple area. And that's Jesus came. So what are the implications of all of this? What are the implications? I was thinking about that. What is God saying here to us 
when we think of it. Um, we look at this fig tree, which is right in the middle of everything on both sides of it, kind of a sandwich with the uh, temple destruction in between, not destruction, but cleansing of the temple in between. And um, we see the fig tree fruitless, not making any fruit. Jesus curses it. He goes to the temple, cleanses it, comes back the next day, and then we see it totally dead. The curse was carried out. I think it says something to us about worship. That's the obvious thing. That's what the temple was all about. That's what all of them were all about. And on Palm Sunday, that's why Jesus went in. That's why Jesus went in on that day. So we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Number one in this is in closing, we ask ourselves the question, is our worship right? Is our worship right? I mean, this church building is not a temple. This is not even a church. This is just a building. We call it a church, but it's not. The church is the people, God's people. And um, are we going through the motions in our worship? Is the question we have to ask ourselves, like the Jews were and like the Pharisees were, who were leading them, and it was over and over and over, more and more corrupt with time, and all the rules and all the regulations that they added that were actually probably several times the size of the Old Testament itself, not to mention the New Testament. But we can do that too. We can make up our own rules for how we get to heaven. Well, how do you get to heaven? Do you know how? Is it by being good? Is it by going to church? By going through the motions? Is it by living a relatively moral life? Is it by giving to the offering box? Is it by helping people out? All those things are generally good. They're not bad things. Um, feeding the poor. All those kinds of things would be things we would say, oh, that's good, and I can get to heaven because I've lived a pretty good life. I haven't really hurt anybody. I haven't killed anybody. Well, maybe I thought about it once or two, and I haven't committed any moral sin, well, out now, but maybe, you know, maybe in my mind I thought about it, but you have to be absolutely perfectly clean before God. And the scripture says there is none righteous, no, not one. Not even one. No, not one. And God's standard is absolute perfection. So the implication here is that is our worship right? We have to ask ourselves that question. What does God want from us? Secondly, I think I would say also, is our life full of fruit or is it just leaves? If you are a born-again Christian, there will be fruit in your life. It's not what saves you, but it's the result of being saved and glorifying God. You want to do that. Or is it just leaves? We come to church all the time, you go through the motions, you bring your Bible, you take notes, uh, you help out, you put money in the offering. That doesn't mean that you're right with God necessarily. Have you come to put your faith in what Christ did for us on that cross? It's interesting, in John chapter 12, these Greeks came to talk with Jesus in the situation here around this temple situation we're talking about. They were the ones who were kind of aced out of the temple area. They couldn't really hardly get in there if they were really want to worship the God of the Old Testament. But they came to Jesus and they asked if they could speak with him, and he did. And quite a few verses are there, but it's interesting. The very last thing that he said to them as he was talking to them about these things, he says, while you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of the light. I like that verse, don't you? That's a good verse. While you have the light, we have the light of Christ. They had the light of Christ, and of course he would die on the cross, but soon be resurrected, and we'd have the Holy Spirit. So we do have the light in that sense today. While you have the light, believe in the light. Believe that Christ did what he said he would do and rose from the grave. Believe that you are a sinner and lost and helpless. And then he says, in order that you may become sons of the light, in order that you may be born again as sons of the light, Christ is the light. 
be born again as sons of the light. And not just fruitless trees with a lot of leaves, but no life, but no fruit. So, is your life full of fruit or just leaves? And then thirdly, thirdly and lastly here, I think we need to see the very fact that God is sovereign in everything he's do- He does. And I, I think that's one of the things that over the years I've come to recognize as I read the Scripture. God is absolutely sovereign in everything He does. Uh, you read the Old Testament stories, the New Testament stories, you soon see that God, when He does something, He means it, and He's behind everything that happens. He knows every detail. It's like I've said, I heard someone said, one great theologian said, uh, if God is not behind what every atom in the universe does and controls it, then there's no God at all. But God is everywhere. And He is sovereign in every situation, even in the destruction of the fig tree. And even in the destruction of the temple. I believe the fig tree the fig tree was a picture of what would happen with the temple. And Jesus said that, so many words, and they began to realize that, and it was destroyed, totally destroyed too. God is sovereign in that destruction. He told them to. I have to think about that a little bit. We see a church burned down. You see a church destroyed. You see vandalism like you see out here that we've had recently. Is God behind that? God knows that. God has a purpose. I have to often say that when our son-in-law was killed in Iraq, I knew the next minute that God was doing something. I didn't know what. And of course, as that unfolded over the, over the years, it was so obvious what God was doing and wanted to do in Iraq through Gabe. So therefore, we need to, to search ourselves in light of this pandemic. What is God doing? It's a good thing to think about just for the moment. It's no accident that this virus has come upon us in these days. It's no accident that it happened right between um, Palm Sunday and Easter in these, these days. Isn't it interesting that it happened right now? I'd ask myself and a couple people, what is God saying that this is happening at this time? It's not just America, but it's the entire world. It's the entire world. India is facing it now with Hinduism and 330 million gods that they worship. And many of those people are going to die because of starvation, they say. It's not just from the sickness, but from the starvation because it's a day-to-day thing. Four times as many people in one-third of the area of the United States. The, uh, the COVID-19 virus is a destructive thing. What's God saying to America? What's he saying to us? We're all affected by it just a little bit, but pretty mildly affected. We've got fairly safe situations in our homes, but it still can happen. But what purpose does he have for us in this? As we rethink our lives, we'll not be quite the same again when this comes back. And if we are quite the same, then we've missed the picture. How can we be better evangelists? How can we be better servants of God? How can we better know his word? How can we better grow in the midst of it? It's interesting that right after the fig tree issue is finished with, verse 21, then in verse 22, Jesus answered his disciples saying, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to the mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, but and does not doubt in his heart, but believes in what he says is going to happen, it will be granted. He goes on to talk about faith talks about some of the important things of faith in verse 24. It says, believe. Believe there. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted. And then in verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive. Have the right heart heart attitude there in the midst of it. Something to think about as Jesus cleansed the temple that day and Jesus came into Jerusalem then and was preparing now for his own death on the cross and what would take place. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 say this, 
See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Where are you today? Are you trusting in your personal goodness, even though none of us are personally good, except for the goodness Christ gives us? There's none righteous, not even one. Scripture says, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. It's not until we turn to Jesus Christ as our Savior who died on that cross, which we'll see next week, and then was resurrected as proof of his everything that he said, that we can know that we're born again and have true faith in Christ. May God bless you on this uh, Palm Sunday and in the Sunday ahead. Father, we thank you for this time. Pray that you would bless the words, the understanding, the very really kind of complicated series of truths taking place here. Bring glory to yourself this Easter and in our country and in the world around us in regard to what's taking place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.